Pre-exposure prophylaxis, also known as PrEP, is a highly effective way to prevent HIV infection. While we are most familiar with the pill that is taken every day, there are new long-acting injectables coming down the pipeline with the potential to improve PrEP adherence. Roughly one in five people who use drugs are at very high risk of getting HIV. Despite this, very few of them are actually getting PrEP. To hear more about these new advancements in PrEP and how we can close the treatment gap for people who use drugs, I interviewed Dr. Tony Urbina. Hi, Tony. Thanks for joining us today. Um, would you mind sharing just your name and a little bit about yourself and what you do? Sure. So my name's Tony Urbina, and I am a professor of medicine at the Icon School of Medicine um, here at Mount Sinai. I'm also the medical director of a HIV and HIV prevention clinic uh, housed in, um, in the Chelsea area of Manhattan. And I've been practicing HIV medicine for uh, over 20 years, uh, pretty much throughout the epidemic and um, also through uh, the advances in HIV prevention. And lastly, um, I'm the principal investigator of the Clinical Education Initiative HIV Primary Care and Prevention Center. And in that role, I kind of oversee a lot of the education for providers throughout New York State on the management of HIV, um, how to diagnose patients with HIV, and also how to manage patients at risk for HIV, mainly through post-exposure prophylaxis and pre-exposure prophylaxis. I'm wondering if you can set the landscape a little bit and just share a little bit about what is PrEP and you know what, what are the available medications that clinicians have? I mean, PrEP uh, stands for pre-exposure prophylaxis, and it's basically medications, and in this case, it's um, antivirals. Currently, it's a combination of two antivirals, we really recommend that they take it daily, but it's basically for persons who are at risk for HIV and they take it to prevent them from getting HIV from not only sex, um, but also through um, injection drug use or other types of drug use. Um, so that's basically what PrEP is. And in the current uh, era right now, there are two medications that are approved. Uh, one of them is FTC. TDF, tenofovir allophenamide with FTC, and that trade name is Truvada. Mm -hmm. And the other one is FTC, so the same, and then tenofovir allophenamide or TAF, and that one is called Discovi. And, and those are the current medications that are available for PrEP. And you sort of highlighted this briefly, but I'm wondering if we can jump into just hearing about what role does drug use play um, in HIV transmission? Yeah, you know, that's a great question. And I think, um, you know, we definitely um, need more data to really look at, you know, the role that um, um, injection drug use and just um, general drug use plays in HIV. But we do have a little bit of data. So, you know, 6% of the incident HIV infections in 2017 were attributed to injection drug use, and they estimate that an additional 3% were attributed to um, 
persons who injected drugs and also reported male to male sexual contact. The risk of HIV transmission um, and also acquisition is greater amongst individuals who um, use drugs. And it's not just through like specific drug use behaviors. And I think we well know like the sharing of needles or other drug paraphernalia, but it's also by the engagement in high risk sexual behaviors that may co-occur with, um, with drug use, be it heroin, um, methamphetamine, cocaine, alcohol, et cetera. And then I think more um, recently, there's been um, increased um, injection drug use that's been fueled by the opioid epidemic. And this has also led to um, increases in um, HIV infections, primarily in, um, in um, rural areas. So generally what the CDC estimates is that, um, and this was one study um, done by the CDC, was that you know approximately like 18.5% of injection drug users were at um, significant HIV risk, mm-hmm. you know, either by the criteria of sharing paraphernalia or um, via sexual behaviors, and um, would meet the eligibility for um, initiation of PrEP. So let's say roughly like one in five Mm. uh, persons who inject drugs. And I mean, that like translates to something like, you know, over 70,000 persons. That's huge. Yeah. (laughs) And there's a big gap there, as you know, um, you know, we haven't gotten there. So there's definitely um, 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 a long way for us to go to kind of scale it up. Mm -hmm. And then the the other area of, you know, outside of injection drug use uh, is, um, in persons who kind of use more stimulant drugs. Mm-hmm. Um, and primarily, I mean, and they call them chemsexers, um, and those are persons, and it's mainly focused in in, in the uh, men who have uh, sex with men community, um, but not strictly. And those are typically drugs like methamphetamines, but it also can include drugs like cocaine. So basically, it's these drugs that are used uh, to enhance sexual activity. And I think we've known for a while that use of these stimulant drugs also enhances uh, HIV transmission and HIV acquisition. Mm -hmm. And some data say um, by as much as sixfold. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And you had previously mentioned that I think almost 20% of people who use drugs that are eligible for PrEP, is that correct? One in five? Yeah, one one out of five meet the criteria, and that's where. So, if persons who inject drugs that um, um, over the last six months who have either one, you know, shared um, mm. needles or drug paraphernalia, or have engaged in behaviors primarily condomless sex while um, um, either high on drugs mm-hmm. um, or um, around those times, and of those eligible that you just mentioned. How many of them are actually getting PrEP? Right. Very, very few of them are. Um, And, you know, that's like the big problem. There's just been um, limited PrEP uptake amongst individuals who who inject drugs. And um, so I think the data, and this is just kind of national data, shows that, you know, of all the eligible persons um, uh, for PrEP, and this is also include um, injection drug users. Only about fourteen percent of them um, actually um, are uh, on a prescription for pre-exposure prophylaxis. Mm. 
So that even applies to the over 70,000. So I am, you know, uh, f- only 14% of those are, are um, really actively on prep. And I think a lot of this is driven, um, I mean, one, uh, due to the lack of awareness, you know, mm-hmm. amongst um, um, persons who um, use drugs. And for example, so um, among a sample of individuals who had injected drugs in the last year, um, there was really low awareness of PrEP. And like only in this one study, only about 13% reported that they had ever heard of PrEP. Mm. And um, when they surveyed them too, none of them, um, um, none of these participants indicated that they knew of anyone who had ever used PrEP in the past year. Wow. You know? And then similarly, like only a quarter of individuals that um, were seeking um, um, syringe exchange services had heard of PrEP. And only two out of, you know, um, nearly 300 participants um, ever endorsed current PrEP use. Mm. So, yeah, I mean, uh, lack of patient uh, awareness and engagement. I imagine that it's both lack of patient awareness and engagement in, in just general medical services, but also lack of awareness among clinicians as well. Yes. Yeah. So, yeah, I think it's definitely um, multifactorial. And that's, an, that's like the other part of this is that um, the big challenge, I think, to like widespread scaling up of PrEP amongst uh, individuals who use drugs, um, inject drugs. Um, a lot of that is, I think, stems from provider attitudes towards PrEP mm. for this population. So, for example, um, in a survey, I mean, HIV care providers reported that they were less likely to prescribe PrEP to individuals who inject uh, uh, inject drugs relative to men who have sex with men. And, you know, their main concerns are this, you know, concerns about adherence and consistent attendance, retention, and follow-up. Mm. And um, th- they've also had concerns um, about the capacity to bring PrEP um, to scale amongst individuals who inject drugs. Um, they just don't think that, like, it's the right venue, um, that the population is too unstable, chaotic, and that um, they're going to have these huge adherence barriers. Hmm. So it's kind of this foregone conclusion. And in fact, that's not backed up by data. Yeah. Yeah, that's really concerning. Definitely, definitely. Because we know that there have been prep demonstration projects and persons who use drugs. Um, so... There was a study um, in um, emergency infectious diseases, about 400 patients. Um, it was a mix of um, cisgendered men and three trans- uh, and, um, transgender women. And what they found in this PrEP demonstration project, uh, project that there was no differences in PrEP adherence. Mm. Um, and these were by drug levels. They used uh, blood splot levels, mm-hmm. which basically will tell you your adherence levels over the last three uh, months. And there was no differences between persons who um, use drugs and those that did not. So even though they do just as well on PrEP, providers still feel that they won't do well on it. Yeah, yeah. 
And that's a misperception, misconception. And I think it's, um, it's something that really needs to be addressed. Um, and I think it needs to be reversed. Um, again, I mean, there's a huge population of persons who use drugs that um, may really benefit from these prevention services, yet there's already this um, stigmatization mm. right off the gate that uh, persons who use drugs are not going to be able to adhere to PrEP medications. And that's a false uh, assumption. Mm-hmm. And you might have mentioned this earlier, but what are the data surrounding PrEP safety? And is that a common misconception about why, you know, that drives why clinicians don't offer it? Yeah. So again, we spoke about the two medications available now mm-hmm. and they're tenofovir based. One of the concerns with the tenofovir is that it's a proximal tubular, tubular poisonet, not a poison, but a little poisonet <laughs> in that in, in very rare cases, mm-hmm. less than 1%, it can cause this acute kidney injury. Again, super rare. What the data has shown is that this rate of acute kidney injury is not greater in persons who use Mm. or inject drugs. And in fact, even with drugs that we think may um, um, have additive kind of kidney toxicity like methamphetamine Mm -hmm. or cocaine, that in the data that's been published, we haven't seen increased rates of um, PrEP users who are also substance users with stimulants. Uh, so again, it's safe to combine these medications. And again, I think there's this misconception, misperception that in persons who abuse drugs, that, uh, the current PrEP medications are not safe and, and that's not true. And that's been borne out by the data. So in those persons, um, who are methamphetamine users, cocaine users, and on pre-exposure prophylaxis, we don't see increased rates of kidney injury. Mm -hmm. So from what we know so far, really there is safety. Now, it doesn't mean that we don't uh, monitor our patients. That's just the standard of care. Um, We would monitor them um, for kidney function um, every six months. But again, so far with the data, no, um, no, no increased rates of toxicity. So what I'm hearing is that PrEP is safe for people who use drugs um, and adherence is the same in people who use and also people who do not use drugs. And yet there are still deep-seated misconceptions about PrEP for this population. So I'm just curious, you know, how, how can we address some of these misconceptions and begin to inch towards closing the treatment gap for this population? Yeah. You know, that's a great question. And I know that we've, you know, um, discussed this before. And um, I think before I kind of address that one, I just wanted to also say that, you know, one is that there is data to support that PrEP is efficacious efficacious in persons who inject drugs, which is kind of um, considered probably the highest risk Mm -hmm. um, for HIV seroconversion. And that was a Thai study which looked at injection drug users in Thailand. And what they really found is that in patients that were adherent to, and in this case, it was just one single antiviral agent, tenofovir, that they had you know, greater than 80% reduction in HIV acquisition. Mm-hmm. So, you know what I mean? A high, high rates again, and, yeah. and this was a large kind of you know, double-blind placebo-controlled study, which really 
prove the efficacy of PrEP in um, injection drug users. Um, I think more of this information needs to get out to providers um, so that they can understand that the data is there to kind of support the efficacy of PrEP. Mm-hmm. Um, and not just in populations like men who have sex with men, but in um, in these populations. So I think one provider education, um, I think is very important, you know, making them feel a little comfortable with how one dispenses PrEP. Like, you know, you got a patient there, what are the important questions to ask? And I think we went over some of them already. It's, you know, just, you know, do you use drugs? Do you inject drugs? Um, and then if yes, you know, um, do you, um, you know, do you practice safe injection practices? If not, okay, let me know what's happened. And then, you know, during intoxication, you know, do, do, do you engage in sexual behaviors that may put you at increased risk for HIV, like um, condomless sex, being insertive, receptive, et cetera. So I think kind of giving um, more providers kind of a easy script so mm-hmm. that um, they can kind of um, more confidently kind of um, assess patients and um, assess um, whether they're great candidates um, for PrEP or not. And then the other thing that I think is super important is that these services be provided, but not just in HIV clinics or by ID doctors or by even PrEP clinics, but that we start to look at other venues. Mm-hmm. So needle exchange programs, um, substance use programs, um, and that we kind of look at these venues, um, we look at these organizations, and that you know we start offering prep um, in those venues, and we kind of meet the patients where they're at, mm-hmm. where they're comfortable going, where they have maybe relationships with either their um, buprenorphine or methadone, or um, their kind of um, uh, groups or clinics that they're um, engaged in. And then just kind of plugging in prep um, into the kind of toolbox of services, but that are offered more where patients are congregating. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it sounds like, you know, we need to do more work around disseminating all of this research and education to clinicians and, you know, provide a roadmap for how they can get to um, identifying a patient is eligible and would benefit from PrEP initiation, and then actually doing it, like getting down to the details of um, prescribing, talking to, talking to the patient about their um, behaviors. Um, and, and just, it almost feels like clinicians might need a script or to be sort of walked through how that process look, wh- what that process looks like. Yeah, no, absolutely. Because it isn't rocket science, but as I'm, you know, as a clinician, um, you know, we, we have a lot of competing interests um, so, you know, emergency room physicians or other physicians kind of concentrate on their, you know, area of interest, um, but that we have to, I think, uh, think a little bit more holistically and just kind of appreciate that, you know, this is a population that can be at risk for HIV and that we should offer them, you know, the same services that would be offered to other individuals um, that are at risk for HIV. And one of the other things that I think can really help with this acceptance and the kind of um, scaling up of PrEP is like the same day offering mm-hmm. of PrEP services so that you know patients don't have to wait because we know that whenever patients have to wait or um, uh, wait for a follow-up appointment that we kind of risk losing that patient. But I'm always like, hey, 
we can offer you the greatest, the latest, the best <laughs> right now, mm-hmm. right here and there. The rapid implementation of PrEP is something that will help with the scaling up of PrEP, retention, and getting our patients um, more opportunities to start on pre-exposure prophylaxis. So this is something that's very easily doable. And as you're talking, it's you know, occurring to me that this sounds a lot like the approach that we're hoping to take for a lot of other initiatives for people who use drugs, including increasing access to buprenorphine and hep C treatment. Very similar barriers and solutions as well. Yeah, yeah, I think so. And I think our, yeah, I think the field of medicine is kind of moving towards that, you know, um, immediate start, um, Mm -hmm. immediate interventions. because we know that a lot of these therapies are safe. And, you know, obviously, you know, patient preparedness and acceptance is important, but I think part of the buy-in can come um, from what the provider has to offer to the patient and the connection that they have. And I think one of the concerns is, um, you know, one with safety. What if they already have like significant kidney disease or what if they're already um, living with HIV, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, but I think um, we can set up um, workflows and processes that can address these issues. So one of the things is that, you know, rapid point of care testing, I think is a great way to screen out people or persons all already living with HIV. Mm-hmm. And just the one thing with PrEP that I think is an important point to remember is that PrEP is just two antivirals. Um, So normally, if somebody is living with HIV and has established HIV infection, um, you need to put them on three antivirals. So PrEP, just being two, would be inadequate treatment for somebody that's already living with HIV. Um, But what we know is that you can draw patients' baseline labs, and if you feel they've had any significant risk within the last month, um, you can also throw in a HIV viral load test that will pick up very early infection. And as long as you can contact the patient, let's say that they've already started, once the results come in, and let's say that you find that they were in early infection or they do have a serum creatinine that's like, you know, two or three, that you can just interrupt their therapy mm-hmm. and, and nothing bad is going to happen. Um, you know, just being on these medications for days or even weeks is not going to make the virus highly drug resistant right. or lead to a lot of mutations or kind of, you know, um, cause their kidneys to go into um, shutdown or failure so that you can, as long as you have these labs banked, you have a way to um, follow up or to connect with the patient, then, you know, the therapy in the rare cases where this occurs can be interrupted. And I think if we wait, if we say, hey, um, let's draw labs, we'll see you back in a couple of weeks, let's see how you do that. Those are the patients that don't come back. And that's a huge loss and a huge intervention that could have helped, you know, have a huge impact on their life. Yeah. Yeah. And there's data to show that. So like in like New York City, where they uh, piloted this immediate uh, versus just the standard of care for PrEP um, in the sexual health clinics. Um, and it was kind of like close to 1500 patients. And um, 
in the immediate start where they kind of use this um, um, algorithm of just like offer them, um, you know, same day, but bank all of the labs. Mm-hmm. Um, they um, did do a, a pretty uh, rough and uh, rough kind of pre-screen, like, you know, do you have any history of kidney disease? Um, um, do you have a history of hepatitis B? Things like that. And then once they screened out, they did like a rapid test. Um, and then they banked all their labs, including viral loads for everybody. And of like the close to 1,400 patients with immediate start, um, they were able to continue. And there was only four of those that they had to call back because of some issue. Mm. And, that, and that was contrasted with the 50 where they deferred Actually, of those 50, um, you know, there 43 out of those 50 had no medical contraindication, no laboratory issues of contraindication. Um, but by deferring them, they were only able to start um, 15 out of those 50. Wow. So, 30, so 35 or 70 percent were lost. Exactly what um, you had said about this missed opportunity. Yeah, that's that's. That's quite a difference in engagement. Um, and it's really quite shocking, actually. Um, so, and I want to ask a question about, you know, these labs. Yeah. For, for clinicians who may be engaging with patients via telemedicine who are requesting yeah. PrEP, what do you recommend in terms of obtaining these baseline labs and banking them? Yeah. So even with telemedicine, I mean, great um, um, use of telemedicine, especially during this, you know, pandemic, um, making sure patients are safe, but also have access um, to their provider. Um, What we've kind of been suggesting is that you can have that initial visit where you take your history, you kind of talk about um, pre-exposure prophylaxis, its efficacy, and et cetera. And then you can really um, direct a patient to um, uh, either a lab core or a quest, and we call it to future the order. Mm-hmm. So to put it into the system so that the patient can then go to either a in-hospital or a community-based lab and just have their labs drawn there. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, when those labs get resulted, um, you have to make sure that you have access to them either within your electronic medical record or uh, through fax. Um, And then you can easily communicate with the patient these results. So not only do I think that you can do that with an initial visit, but definitely for patients that are already on pre-exposure prophylaxis, that for monitoring visits, I think um, you can have telehealth visits just to check in with the patients but that you can just future and put in these orders for the labs prior to that video or, or, or televisit um, so that you can discuss those results. And basically for monitoring of PrEP, the important thing is, is that you want to make sure that the patient remains HIV negative. Mm-hmm. So those are quarterly HIV tests. And in most populations, or at least those that, um, you know, have um, um, frequent sexual partners or, um, you know, are sharing drug paraphernalia, um, that they also have frequent screens for sexually transmitted infections. Mm -hmm. Um, 
And we can put in those orders and we really encourage patients to do self swabs. So oral pharyngeal, urine, rectal swabs. But again, all of these can be done, um, you know, either prior or after to the video visit. Mm -hmm. So that should not be a barrier to actually prescribing PrEP via telemedicine. No, no. And I think it's going to be able to us to kind of um, actually manage more patients on PrEP because, you know, and I think uh, a good kind of workflow is maybe this kind of hybrid of, you know, in-person, video, video, in-person, um, and maybe even just one in-person visit a year and the rest are just kind of video with like lab um, visits. So yeah, it should not get in the way. And in fact, it should, you know, lower the barrier um, um, of like accessing medications. Again, the important thing is that patients um, come in to do their blood works. You, main, you, you make sure that, they're, that they remain HIV negative mm-hmm. because if someone should seroconvert, um, you don't just want to put them on PrEP. Remember, it's just two drugs. You want to put them on a fully suppressive regimen, which, which would involve three antivirals combined. And typically, um, you could still give them a single tablet regimen. A related question, um, you know, something that we see quite frequently in uh, the population of people who use or inject drugs is um, just kind of like a, a, a smattering of other priorities that people have to deal with in their life. And for some, for actually many, it's very hard to get to a lab core or a quest or like a community-based lab center. And very often, I think, um, sometimes we have to use patient navigators or community health workers to right. help shepherd people there. So, yeah. um, and, I, and I sort of suspect that, um, you know, asking some of these patients to go to get their quarterly lab somewhere else in the community might be really hard. So what, what would you do yeah. in that situation? Yeah, yeah. That's a great question. Um, you know, one thing that just comes to mind and that we've also used as well is kind of home-based testing. Mm. So we know that there are home-based, um, you know, HIV tests. So there's the um, oral saliva-based or quick test for HIV. Um, so that's something I know during this pandemic too, we were mailing a lot of those out. I mean, in this case, it the barrier was really, you know, patients not wanting to get on subways or not, um, um, you know, wanting to socially distance or right. not leave their apartment. Um, and then there's also um, home-based STI testing mm-hmm. um, that also can be done, which may be, um, which may be easier for patients that have, you know, barriers to either, you know, accessing a lab, wanting to go to a lab. And then I think one of the other things um, that I think that one can consider too is um, possibly setting up very low barrier access for blood draws and for screenings, um, either within your clinic or within, um, I would say, organizations that provide um, any type of substance use counseling, be it a CBO um, or a community health center. So basically drop-in centers. Mm you know, where they can come in, it doesn't have to be scheduled, and they basically have kind of resources available to kind of meet patients where they're at, including evening hours or kind of weekend hours where um, they can drop in. And 
because one of the things that's going to come up and you kind of bring this up is that if patients don't show up for their follow-up visits, um, what do you do? Um, Do you interrupt their therapy? You know, I think um, we should not interrupt their therapies um, really. Um, And what we try to do is we try to meet patients in the middle. So let's say that they miss their follow-up appointment. My tendency is to say, listen, I'm going to write you for another month of pre-exposure prophylaxis, but I really need you to come in or come somewhere just so we can check your um, HIV status and a kidney function. And to really try to get them, um, you know, to give them that kind of buffer. Mm -hmm. Um, And that buffer can be, you know, anywhere from, you know, I tend to do it for like, a month. After that, you really do want to really encourage them to come in. And I think it's one of the limitations right now um, of our pre-exposure prophylaxis is that um, it's basically oral medications needs to be taken daily. And again, um, you know, checking every three months. Now, in patients that are stable, um, doing well, and you, you have confidence in their adherence, you know, I I think that um, there could be uh, possibilities of maybe just doing their blood work every six months. But again, I would err on the side of caution a little bit, just initially just up front. I mean, regardless of the population is just, I would say if they can show adherence to quarterly lab draws for the first year, and then one may also say, hey, I think, you know, maybe we can have the frequency of testing be um, every six months. But I would say home-based testing would be, um, the most convenient. The other is just kind of like lower uh, barrier um, to um, kind of laboratory-based taste, uh, testing within your clinic, uh, offering weekend and evening hours. And then the third is possibly extending that window, you know, every six months in those um, patients where you're confident about their adherence. TDF versus TAF. Like, what do clinicians need to know about how to select between the two? Right. Yeah. So that's a great question. And just to also know that TDF now is um, generic. Um, So Mm -hmm. the TDF, FTC, now um, those co-formulations are um, generic. So I think one of the important differences is is in their effectiveness and in the populations that they've been studied. So for TDF, FTC, basically um, effectiveness in all populations and for TAF and FTC, really just cisgender men and transgender women. So we don't have the data yet about TAF, FTC uh, for vaginal exposures. And we don't have the data for persons who inject drugs. Mm-hmm. So those are... Uh, I would say two of the very important differences um, between the two. And then some of the other differences are um, TAF FTC was basically designed, uh, tweaked a little bit to be, um, to have less kidney issues and to have uh, less issues on uh, bone mineral densities. So I would say in patients where you're concerned, either because of increasing age, advancing age, or because of comorbidities, be it osteopenia, osteoporosis, or, um, or um, CKD, that you may want to use TAF um, FTC. Mm-hmm. 
Um, so those are two important differences. And the other difference, and we, uh, is that another way to prescribe PrEP besides daily dosing, and one of the things that's very important also, and it, it comes in our script when we counsel our providers in terms of uh, counseling patients who use drugs, for patients who report injection drug use, and again, you know, we reported that Thai study. I mean, one can imagine that if, um, you know, a, um, a needle was filled with blood with uh, HIV virions, and then that was injected directly into a, a vein. You know, that's a high transmission probability right there. Mm -hmm. So PrEP takes a while um, after daily dosing to accumulate in tissues to confer protection. So in persons who inject drugs, ideally you need to be on it for 21 days, kind of prior to achieving that protective level. Mm. And for um, really um, anal receptive exposure after seven days, because it tends to get to the anal rectal tissue fast <laughs> um, and reach steady state concentrations. For vaginal tissue, it's also 21 days. And typically, the, it's, it's this 21-7 rule of thumb. It's that for anal rectal exposure, you have to be on it daily for seven days. Mm -hmm. and, and for everything else, it's 21. So that includes vaginal, injection drug use. Um, so that's one of the things that we counsel our patients. But there was more recent data that showed that in, um, in men who have sex with men and transgender women, that one can give on-demand, um, some call it disco dosing or... Um, um, dosing around an isolated sexual exposure. Mm -hmm. So on demand is basically two tablets of TDF FTC um, given two to 24 hours before an exposure and then one tablet 24 hours later and then the last one 48 hours after that. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of four tablets <laughs> kind of around this exposure over three days. And has that been shown to be non-inferior to daily dosing in those populations? Yes. Yeah. So in those populations, um, and there was a double blind, uh, double uh, dummy placebo controlled study that um, showed that um, on demand can be as effective as daily dosing in certain populations and, it's, and, and in those that, that were studied. So that was men who have sex with men, um, and in a smaller proportion of transgender women. So importantly here, it's really not indicated in persons who inject drugs mm -hmm. because it's felt that you really need good, strong, high concentrations of these drugs, mainly through daily dosing. Now, for other modes of uh, drug use, so nasal or inhalational, uh, this on-demand dosing um, is effective. Um, so in the in the studies where they looked at this on-demand dosing, there's a subset of patients that did report kind of stimulant drug use, and there was no difference in, in um, efficacy between those mm. that, that are reported, either nasal or inhalational use of drugs. So, so I think those are some of the um, biggest differences. So unfortunately, or, or rather fortunately, just for persons who inject drugs, it's, it's really as for... Um, 
cisgendered women or vaginal exposure. It's really daily dosing. Mm -hmm. So I'm imagining a scenario where a provider might be working with a, a person who injects, let's say, fentanyl and um, is requesting PrEP, but um, is requesting on-demand dosing for PrEP. Um, what, what should the provider do in that scenario? Should they still offer PrEP? Yeah, very interesting question. One of the... Um, the kind of strategy of on-demand, which makes it, I think, so effective is these two tablets mm -hmm. that you give that, that, that kind of day before the exposure or as close as two hours before, but ideally closer to that 24 is better. Um, I would really try to counsel patients and tell them, listen, the data really uh, hasn't looked at injection drug use and on-demand dosing. Um, we know that injection drug use, um, you know, um, can confer one of the highest risks for transmission of HIV, just like the donation of uh, HIV positive blood supply, you know, in the mm. bank, which is rarely occurs. Um, what I would offer for that patient is um, possibly a harm reductionist approach to say, listen, I think we can maybe do a hybrid Um of on-demand versus daily dosing, what I really would like you to do is let's start off with daily dosing. Um, and then what I really want you to do is to really take it daily. And I wanna see you back in either a couple of weeks or a month. And I wanna really see one, what your, what your patterns of injection drug use have, have been. Is it isolated? Are you injecting more than you uh, think you are or that you want to? And then in that month, really kind of have a sit down conversation with them and say, listen, if you're injecting, um, you know, more than, you know, a couple of times a week or, um, you know, um, even just weekly, basically those four tablets, um, you know, once a week, um, I would say, I think it's better for you um, to do daily. Mm -hmm. If they report very infrequent use, um, I would probably have a conversation with them and says, we don't really have data to support uh, on-demand dosing, but if you're going to use, if you're not going to do daily, then this may be possibly something that you can try. But the only thing is, is that I might extend that tail, mm. um, meaning just that one dose um, um, to not just that to, uh, um, to another week. I see. But, but again, um, data doesn't support it, not FDA approved, hasn't been studied. Um, but I would try to meet the patient where they're at, but I would try to start them off daily, see if that's something that they can accept. Mm -hmm. And another thing that I would also tell them too, and, and is that we're going to have long acting injectables for PrEP. Right. You know, so if we can at least start you <laughs> with daily dosing, we know it's highly effective. We don't have the data for on demand. Um, that would definitely be off label, but it's something that we can, you know, potentially use in an off label harm reductionist approach. But that if you can hang in there, <laughs> um, take these medications, prevent HIV, um, 
that we're going to have these long acting injectables that are um, going to last in your body for a couple of months, mm. six, six months or um, even a year. That's amazing. Yeah. So again, I, I think that, that I call it that, um, that carrot, <laughs> um, you know, and I think also we know that in persons uh, who use drugs that although there's limited awareness about PrEP, but if we ask um, um, persons who inject drugs, um, if they're interested in pre-exposure prophylaxis, a large majority are. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So um, one study said, you know, this asked, you know, would you be interested in uh, this pre-exposure prophylaxis if it was offered to you? And, you know, 42% indicated they would be very likely to use PrEP. You know, another quarter said somewhat likely. Um, and like, you know, a third said that they were not. Um, we know that in um, HIV negative individuals who inject drugs, for example, in like this Vancouver study, you know, one third expressed this, you know, willingness to use PrEP. Mm -hmm. And, and, and in those where they were um, educated in like um, um, syringe exchanges services, you know, 63% said, yeah, this is something that um, I am will be interested in doing. And this level of interest even though these long-acting injectables, the data so far hasn't been studied specifically in persons um, who inject drugs, but when they sampled um, populations who inject drugs and said, hey, would you be interested in these long-acting injectables? Uh, there was a lot of interest. Mm -hmm. I mean, over 70% were willing to use a long-acting injectable. Mm -hmm. I just think the future of these long-acting injectables is so um, transformative. <laughs> wow. And just so people know, like, um, what is this long-acting injectable called and how would it be, how often would it be dosed? Oh, yeah. So, and the studies have basically already been published. There are the HPTN-083 and the HPTN-084 studies. And, um, what the studies did, and it's very rigorous, they compared uh, oral PrEP to um, these long-acting injectable. And the name of the long-acting injectable is um, cabotegravir. And it is an injection that is given every two months. Great. Yeah. And in the first study that looked at um, men who have sex with men and transgender women, it was 69% more effective than oral PrEP. Wow. And, and in the 084 study, which was looking at cisgender women, uh, mainly in Africa, um, it was superior to oral prophylaxis. In fact, it was 89% more effective. And I, I, I think not surprising, I mean, oral PrEP we know is effective, but I think these long-acting injectables, of course, um, I think it's obvious that patients can adhere to an injectable therapy that has such a longer half-life mm -hmm. than to the oral medications. And that's what was driving this greater effectiveness. So those are the um, long-acting intramuscular um, injectables. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so now they're they're um, they're probably going to be uh, the recommendation is that they're given uh, intragluteal. Mm-hmm. Um, so they probably cannot be self-injected. Right. And I think those will be available probably um, 2022. Wow. Really coming down yeah. the pipeline. Yeah, really coming down. And then just on top of that also, there are um, implantable devices that are being studied with these antiviral medications that have this nanopeptide technology, meaning that they're slowly released from the lymph nodes mm. and they're implanted much like uh, Nexplanon right. um, and they can deliver drug for a year. Wow. And, and in addition to that, um, there is going to be a subcutaneous antiviral the one that's being developed is called Lenacaprevir. And it has this unique property um, of being subcutaneous. It can be injected much like insulin. Mm. And its half-life is such that it can be dosed every six months. Wow. And is that something that patients themselves can administer? Yes. So they'll be able to self-administer. So back to your kind of about, you know, bringing PrEP uh, to the needs of patients. Um, Yeah, they could self-administer. And it's basically a very small volume injection every six months. Mm. And then then just lastly, for oral formulations, that same formulation that's going to be in the implantable, the name of that antiviral is called um, Islatravir. They're also going to work on a oral formulation that patients can take one tablet monthly. Wow, that's great. I mean, I think I think as much as we can make this easier for people to get for HIV prevention, um, the better it will be for everyone and maybe even for widespread dissemination in multiple settings like you mentioned earlier. Yeah, yeah. And I do think we need the help of our um, substance use colleagues and uh, buprenorphine prescribers, which we all should be, and um, um, our, our, our multidisciplinary teams, because it's really about, I still think it comes down to motivational interviewing. Yeah. And why is this important to the patient? How are we going to get them um, to buy in? The pharmacology is there, the effectiveness is there, the data is there in, um, in populations who use drugs, in populations who inject drugs. But still, I think besides the lack of awareness, I also think it's patient buy-in. And that's where I think we need the help of our colleagues. And Linda, I'm just going to throw it to you. And I know you're interviewing me, but I want to ask you, yeah. um, what do you think about how best to kind of script and have the conversation about patients. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that um, coming at it from a harm reduction model where we're really trying to get at what the patient's values and their goals are and trying to recognize that we have to work with people slowly over time to get to know them, get to know their culture, you know, what they um, like, what are some of the things that drive them and that push them to want to um, do the things that they want to do? What is their understanding of health? So I I do think that we need better 
more comprehensive and nuanced understanding uh, about who our patients are. And I think that they need to be sitting at the table when we yeah. are drawing up these scripts and guidelines. Because if they're not at the table, then it's it's not going to be reaching them. Um, yeah, yeah. And, and so I think that's really important. And I think also identifying what some of their patient-centered outcomes would be, um, which is not necessarily what um, our outcomes in the medical scientific community are. Um, right. And I think, I think it's really hard in, in our biomedical model to integrate some of these harm reduction philosophical principles. Um, but I think that will be really key in reaching this population. But it sounds like from the data that you're citing, Tony, most, yeah. most people who use drugs want PrEP and they yeah. Yeah. want to talk about it and access it and want to take it so that they can prevent HIV. And I, I really believe that a huge piece of um, a huge piece of this puzzle is really addressing stigma and yeah. not just stigma yeah. that um, providers and other medical staff um, impose upon their patients or their clients, but also internalized yeah. stigma and environmental stigma. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, those are all really valid points. And yeah, I do think just from the data, um, yeah, it's, there's an interest, um, you know, patients are not um, given, you know, information about pre-exposure prophylaxis. And I, I have often had patients that have come up to me um, who use drugs and say, I just really appreciate that you don't just talk to me about my drug use. Mm -hmm, exactly. <laughs> but that, you know, but that you talk to me about other things that are important to me. Um, and that you validate me as a person, um, that you don't judge me for using drugs, um, and that you realize that, um, you know, other aspects of my health, of my sexual health, of my well-being are important. And that's how I try to throw in um, not just prevention for HIV, but, you know, prevention for other things like heart disease and diabetes and things like that. And and I think that they um, really appreciate that. Totally. Yeah. I, I think that is such a humanizing approach to care. And I, and I feel really strongly that it can help us engage more people. Absolutely. Yeah. And again, I mean, hopefully I've been able to share with you that um, the data is there to show its effectiveness. Yeah. Um, and the data is there to show its interest that basically the same barrier that we have to our patients that don't use drugs, we have to our patients who like use drugs. So yeah. there's, you know, issues with adherence and retention and patients who are on PrEP who don't use drugs, but that that should not be a, a reason uh, for us to stigmatize our patients and to not offer them something that can avert, you, you know, something that's kind of um, life-changing. Exactly. And I hope that we can all take this information that you've shared, such important information, and you know, disseminate it widely amongst our colleagues so we can get to work and try to try to close that gap. Absolutely. Thank you so much for sharing all of this with us, Tony. You are you are very welcome. It was my pleasure. 
Any Positive Change, a Drug User Health Podcast, is part of the New York State Clinical Education Initiative, or CEI. We are funded by the New York State AIDS Institute to provide progressive continuing medical education for clinicians to enhance their capacity to deliver high-quality healthcare services and to improve patient outcomes. CEI offers free CE-accredited trainings, conferences, clinical technical assistance, and tools on sexual health, HIV primary care and prevention, hepatitis C treatment, and drug user health. You can also speak with Dr. Margie Urban and other clinical specialists directly to discuss STI, PEP, PrEP, HIV, hepatitis C, and drug user health management by calling our CEI line at 1-866-637-2342. You can also find that number and more information at ceitraining.org.